This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Hello, I'm Brian Lauder, editor of Outward, and as my uncut, messy hair grows longer, I can feel my gay powers weakening. (laughs) It's it's like a Samson and Delilah story, but in reverse. Soon I will be a little more than a hirsute husk. Was nice knowing you, my dear friends. I believe in you, Brian. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate, and I'm still weeping over the divine gift of the new Fiona Apple album Mm. in this time of need was truly some manna from heaven nourishing me body and soul i'm ramon alam and i am living every day like it's who's afraid of virginia wolf between homeschooling and scrolling twitter (laughs) i have just been self-medicating with a nightly scotch on the rocks and i am going to emerge from this period hopefully without covid19 but possibly with cirrhosis of the liver But you have to maintain, you know, some grasp on sanity, however you can. And as somebody with many years of baldness under my belt, let me just say, Brian, your hair looks great. Oh, my God. Thank you. All right. Before we get started this week, we have one order of business. We would like to cordially invite all of our listeners to a special virtual pride hangout on June 3rd. Uh, We're going to be hosting a special guest, Bob the Drag Queen, for an 8 p.m., let's call it a kiki. We're going to be live on the interweb with a few cocktails and snacks. It's a BYO, so prepare something for yourself. You can go to slate.com slash live for more details, but just know you can expect something a little loosey-goosier than our normal show. And who knows what Bob will have in store for us? It's going to be so much fun. You can ask us questions, too. Uh, Again, that's June 3rd at 8 p.m. Go to slate.com slash live for details. Yeah, that is going to be so much fun. I I cannot wait. Uh, But first, we've got another great Quarantine Times show for you this month. First, we'll hash out an intriguing proposition that Christina brought to the coven, which is that in a number of surprising ways, queer people may have been better prepared for dealing with the COVID crisis, social distancing, and all the rest of it than other groups of people. Then we thought we'd discuss two fascinating and maybe unexpectedly related new queer f- films on Netflix. The f- title of the first is A Secret Love, and the second is Circus of Books. Uh, and then we'll end with our usual updates to the gay agenda. But first, it's time for Pride and Provocations. Uh, Ramon, what do you have for our consideration this month? I'm feeling kind of proud this month. Um, I just finished reading a book called The Chiffon Trenches, which is a memoir by Andre Leontelli. It's a take mm. it's a take no prisoners account of his years working in high fashion. Andre Leontelli began his career at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. He worked at Andy Warhol's Interview Magazine. He worked at Vanity Fair, and he was famously a longtime associated with Vogue Magazine. 
The book is really dishy. It's really candid about his lifelong friendship with Karl Lagerfeld, the late designer of Chanel. And it's very candid about his sort of falling out with Anna Wintour, who is, of course, the editor-in-chief of American Vogue, and really talks a lot about his role and the role generally of Black people in mainstream American fashion. And... Um, Later in his life, Tally gained quite a bit of weight, and he talks a lot about what it is to be somebody in kind of an unruly body in the constrained and conventional world of high fashion. It's a really, really interesting book. It's sort of like having... Um, it's sort of like sitting down to drinks with somebody who has seen a lot and is really ready to tell their story. And uh, it's kind of a nice break from all of the serious news that I know we're all reading. Yeah, I've seen some fi- some fire quotes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that, uh, yes, it's especially about Aunt Miss Anna. Exactly, so I, I would, uh, exactly. Yeah, it's really I, taken fire on the internet. So, Christina, what are you feeling this month? I'm provoked this month. Um, I'm provoked by a piece on the Strategist at New York Magazine mm. titled "Eleven Best Mother's Day Gifts for Two Mom Families." Now. I'm glad that the strategist was making an effort to be inclusive of all kinds of families for Mother's Day. Um, And I should preface this by saying gift guides are sort of a constant source of hate reading for me, just because if they ever try to attempt any degree of specificity as to the identity of the gift recipient, it always ends up seeming like completely insulting and reductive and full of cringy stereotypes. Um, I've written about gift guides for men and how they make them all seem like <laughs> lumberjack, like drunken brutes. Yeah. Um, but one one wonders, why does a mom who parents with another mom need a different sort of gift from a mom who parents with a dad or on her own? Uh, and I know I don't know if the woman who wrote the piece is queer, but the gifts were recommended by members of two mom families themselves and also Dana Rudolph, who's the founder of the parenting, the LGBTQ parenting site Mombian. That's a portmanteau of mom and lesbian, in case you can't tell. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> um, so one of my friends, who is a lesbian and a mom, sent this to me. And she was like, why does being in a two-mom family mean that I can't expect a very expensive, beautiful gift? Because the suggestions were terrible. <laughs> one of them is the, the children's book, Mommy, Mama, and Me, which... For Mother's Day, a mom should not expect a present for her own child. (laughs) It should be something that she could enjoy. Two of the suggestions are literally just greeting cards that happen to have something about, you know, two moms on them. Don't get your two moms one single card. Get them. (laughs) They each deserve their own card, and you better get them something besides a greeting card. One of the suggestions was a donation to an LGBTQ family nonprofit very well-meaning, kind. I'm sure a lot of parents out there are feeling altruistic in this time, but she also deserves something of her own. Um, And just the, and then there was like, you know, send them to a hotel, give them massage gift card, things that literally anyone could enjoy. But that sort of drove home to me the absurdity of trying to give, like, narrow down the gift recipient so far that that there could ever be a specific gift that a lesbian who is a parent would want for Mother's Day, but not any other kind of person. Um, So the whole endeavor really rubbed me the wrong way, provoked me, you could say. 
I like it. I like it. You know, we, um, I have two kids and we do not have a mom living in our household. And so Mother's Day always kind of feels like it doesn't really have a place in our family's life. And then Father's Day doesn't really either because our kids are so young that it ends up just being my husband David and I doing nice things for one another. And, you know, like many gay couples, we're like basically the same person. And I don't know what possible <laughs> gift you could give to him that I would not also want to possess. So like, it's like you said, it's well-meaning, but that's, I can see why that would be provoking. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Brian, how are you feeling? Um, I am feeling provoked this month as well. Um, as some of our listeners may have seen, uh, toward the end of April, this organization, uh, activist organization, advocacy organization called Binet, um, got on Twitter and claimed that they owned the copyright to the buy flag. Now, that is the flag that is pink, purple, and blue bars. Very simple flag. See it all the time at Pride and other events. Uh, they claimed they owned it uh, and started asking both like independent artists who had used the flag and, and you know things that they were making and groups like the HRC, um, other ag- advocacy organizations to, to reach out to make licensing, licensing agreements with, with them. Uh, now, this is pretty audacious, uh, but what was pleasing was that in a rare moment of queer unanimity, every single bi person <laughs> I saw online vigorously rejected this notion. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen, you know, a group of people so united in in their hostility to this idea. Um, and it's worth noting uh, just that uh, as as far as anyone, as far as I can tell from sort of reading up on it, it's actually impossible to claim copyright on an image like that, on a flag in the first place in most cases, and then especially ones that are sort of just colors and shapes in design. Um, in general, those are not things that you can copyright. Uh, but anyway, like so, so this this uh, precipitated a long, messy series of statements and account deletions and petitions and drama. I'm not going to get into all of that here. If you want to go read about it, the advocate has covered it uh, out, has covered it. Various publications have little rundowns, but um, I don't think we need to get into all that on the podcast. The point I want to make is just that even if someone could make this kind of claim legally, no one should, no one should have ownership over a symbol uh, like the, like the bi flag or the rainbow flag or any of the various queer flags that we hold dear because it just goes against the spirit of community that they're that they're there for, um, and it's it's just sort of a bad look. So uh, I'm glad that uh, it seems like the uh, maybe the bi community as a whole one might <laughs> one might hazard has rejected this, and also that uh, Binet, the organization that made the claim, seems to have backed down. Um, but uh, while this is going on, it was very provoking, and so uh, let's let's not ever do that again. Understandably. It does sound like it could end on a moment of pride, though, to see a rare moment of what seems to be unanimity within the community. I, I like that so- social social distancing has not affected people's ability to stir up drama. <laughs> yeah. No, no, not at all. Not at all. It's something to yeah, be proud, something of. To be proud yeah. of. <laughs> Definitely. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So two episodes ago, we spoke with Alfonso David, the president of the Human Rights Campaign, about the disproportionate impact of the coronavirus pandemic and the economic recession on LGBTQ people. Uh, We're still more likely than our cis and straight counterparts to be without health insurance and to work in industries like hospitality and sex work that are suffering right now. This week, we're going to talk about something a little different, the flip side of that disproportionate harm, which is a little theory I've been bouncing around about how queer communities are better prepared than others to weather this kind of instability uh, and the way that our traditions of resilience and family making can actually sustain us through this crisis. So I first thought about this in relation to quarantine bubbles, or pods, as some people call them. Um, For those of you who haven't heard about this concept, it's an expansion of the household during quarantine to include a couple of other households, essentially. So you want to keep your group to 10 or fewer people. Um, It's a way to get more social support, more social connection in what ends up being a relatively safe way, much safer by several orders of magnitude than large gatherings. Uh, And if everyone in a pod is following social isolation orders outside of the pod, it's only very slightly less safe than isolating alone. It's essentially just expanding your family or your household to a larger size. Um, So my wife and I are in a pod with two other couples, Um, We talked about the possibility of creating a pod for a few weeks before we started hanging out in closer contact. You know, we would go on a hike together, keep our distance, sort of feeling each other out uh, until, you know, now I think we've had one dinner indoors, but it's been so nice that we've still mostly been hanging out outdoors. But we've also been picking up groceries for each other, uh, cooking for each other, and generally making a new social unit for this really difficult time. Um, And the whole process of setting this up, you know, um, discussing relative risk, harm reduction, negotiating boundaries, uh, establishing a foundation of trust and honesty and consent felt very queer, actually. The kinds of conversations that I would normally associate with non-monogamy or uh, ethical relationship building in general Um, and sort of reimagining what it means to be a family unit. And because everyone in my pod is queer, we felt highly prepared to do the kind of processing that was required of us in this moment. We were like already halfway there in terms of trusting people to abide by ground rules and trusting them to make the best decision for themselves. Um, So I want to take this moment to applaud queer traditions for setting us up to make this happen. Um, Have you guys experienced anything similar? Well, it's so funny because when you you brought this uh, idea to the group and I and I meet you were describing what you, you know the process that y'all have gone through to form your your um, quarantine cool 
And I w- immediately recognized that. I, I haven't done that myself um, yet, but um, I immediately recognized sort of the the familiarity that you describe between like sort of muscles that you already had, right, from being queer and how they could be um, used in a different way in this moment. I had been thinking about the same thing, like in terms of, um, let's call it like public health calculus, um, to, to sort of try to put a banner over what I'm trying to talk about. Um, for me, you know, as a gay man, I have, since the moment I came out, um, I have been thinking about things like exposure, right, to HIV uh, and other STIs, but HIV especially, especially before PrEP, like early on in my life, um, exposure, risk, uh, mitigated risk, harm reduction, right? Like how do you think about, um, you know, you don't want to be abstinent necessarily, so how do you find ways of having sex that are safer, right? Like all of those kinds of modes of thinking um, are so familiar to me and just so ingrained in the way that I approach um, and have approached like sexual health in my life that <clears throat> hearing about you know a new pathogen <laughs> that isn't the same as those pathogens right or the same as the same as HIV or or, or other STIs um, but is nonetheless nonetheless requires the same kind of mathematics right. Um, made it easier for me to think about it, right? I remember, I I, I feel like I was reading articles early on in, in during COVID where people were sort of seeming to just grap- just begin to grapple with um, any of these ideas. And for me, it was like, well, no, of course, like, you know, if you get tested on this day, then like that tells you something for this amount of time, but no longer than that, right? Or you need, like, and so so all of that kind of thinking is just so built into me that this has not, that part of this, <laughs> if that makes sense, has not felt new or scary. It's just felt like plugging in different um, inputs, but like to the same the same structure of, of thinking. Um, and that has been comforting, right? I'm not, I don't feel so confused about, about what um, testing mechanisms will mean eventually, right? Because I understand how that works for STIs and I, you know, so whatever, like that, that was all there already. And I do feel more prepared um, than I think other people might be. And that has been nice. And I also think the it's, uh, some people might hear this conversation and think like, oh, this means that queer people will be more likely to be Uh, reckless or risky and you know feel less afraid and so Mm. go out and not be isolating as strictly but I actually think it makes us less likely to do those things because we're more familiar with assessing the different degrees of risk of different behaviors and understanding it's not all black and white and the impact on a collective right like like not all of us think that way of course but like I think more queer people than not certainly uh consider the impact of individual actions on, you know, I mean, that again, with HIV, that was just such a huge part of it It was just like, my sex life does bear on others, um, who may or may not, you know, even be immediately connected to me. So it's, 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 that is that thinking is already there. And I think, you know, could inspire more caution, uh, rather than less. I mean, my only the closest I've brushed up against this is as a parent, um, where a lot of families I know are really struggling with their kids, especially if there's only one kid in the household. I'm lucky that we have two, and so the the boys can kind of socialize with one another. But 
um, kids are little social animals and they need human interaction. And so I am aware of families making arrangements like what Christina is describing, where there's one other family or two other families where the kids can kind of play together and they can have dinner together or whatever. And one of the things that I've heard from adults involved in these situations is that they're afraid of talking about it publicly. They're, um, they're concerned that they will, you know, that they will be scolded that, you know, and so they don't put it on Instagram. They don't, uh, you know, share that information. And so effectively that's taking place in the closet, which also feels kind of familiar to me, this fear of (laughs) fear of approbation guiding a kind of discretion around your social choices feels very familiar to me. And also when Christina, when you first brought this up, um, I had told you both a story that, um, uh, a person of my acquaintance seems to be having a very difficult time with the enforcement of the rules that we're all observing now that you you may have to wait in line outside of the grocery store or you you know you may not be able to rely on the, the help of your nanny and your housekeeper and all of those things and it is driving this particular person I know to the very brink and they are really <laughs> unable to, uh, just they, they, they have spoken very publicly about feeling really frazzled. And and I had this realization that it was her first real experience of difficulty, that she had never, ever encountered a life that was circumscribed by really anything at all. And that's pretty remarkable because I think that most of us make calculations constantly with personal safety or with like our own comfort level, like you you do that, you negotiate that constantly in society. And there it's a reminder to me that there are people, mostly straight people, mostly rich, straight people, mostly rich, able-bodied white straight people who don't necessarily have to negotiate that constantly, who enter every situation with ease and comfort and with the presumption that everything will sort of go as they want it to. And in some ways, being raised that way is to your detriment because when you do encounter difficulty, you don't necessarily know how to respond. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, a really interesting point. I know there are also a lot of parents right now, especially parents that include a man and a woman, as God intended, <laughs> um, who are finding that what they might have thought was an egalitarian setup, it becomes inegalitarian when placed under stress and constraints. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And more often than not, the bulk of that extra burden falls on the woman in the relationship. And so I know a lot of very progressive straight couples right now who are sort of grappling with realities about their wage differences and how, you know, when the the man in the couple makes more money, which is usually the case, um, it makes more sense for the woman to take time off to do childcare. Um, and, you know, we could argue for forever about whether or not that calculation actually makes sense. But um, it it strikes me and not to say that all queer couples are perfectly egalitarian. Um, you know, if, if in egalitarianism is your kink, go for it. <laughs> um, but it was funny because for a, a segment on the other podcast that I host the waves, which is taking a hiatus right now. Um, I put out a call on Twitter about, you know, I, I'm trying to hear from women who, you know, about their bulk of domestic labor right now, basically. And a couple of queer people responded and were like, 
well, there's two women in my household and we've both spit it equally. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> I'm really proud of you guys. Um, but that, that seems like yet another way in which, you know, we, the wage gap, any wage gap in a queer couple or in a gay couple is not necessarily gendered. And there are also no strict rules about how to set up a household. Yeah. So we negotiate things constantly about what makes sense for our relationship. And there's no default to fall back on. I think that's, yeah, that is so true. That's so true. Like, it's, and as you're saying, Christina, like, even, I feel like even very progressive straight couples, I mean, most of my friends are very progressive straight people. And I'm often surprised by how they 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 fall to default assumptions about like shoveling the snow is dad's job and changing the diapers is mom's job without ever interrogating that or discussing it at all. And that doesn't take place in my household. It doesn't, and it's liberating that it doesn't, it's really, really liberating. I would, it would be impossible for me to negotiate um, working as I am right now and dealing with my kids without a partner who, not only respected my work, but didn't assume that by virtue of my gender, I would be the one to like get up and fix the kids breakfast, you know? Um, so Christina, I mentioned before that I know families kind of constructing an arrangement similar to the one that you describe. And I wondered if you and your partner felt like you were being discreet or private about that arrangement. A hundred percent. In fact, this is my coming out <laughs> and I'm really nervous about it because even I, I, I had an experience the other day on Slate Slack when the concept of bubbles or pods came up and it was the first time in a long time that we were really like vigorously disagreeing about something important because usually like on political issues, we're, we don't all think the same, but we generally, you know, agree on a certain like basic foundation of tenets. Um, But this is something about which really smart people and progressive people can have very different opinions. And so there were a lot of people on Slate Slack, straight people, (laughs) uh, who were like, how can you even trust anyone to abide by the rules (laughs) of your pod? And I'm like, well... I trust my friends and also this kind of negotiation is not foreign to me. And it, it, it doesn't, you know, well, a, like we've all done very intense, like mental and communal calculations about the kinds of risks we actually are taking. And they're very, very slight. Um, but also we feel like the value of being in a community together is something that we can't go without, you know, the, right being disconnected in a single family unit is not how we function in our lives. And, you know, our family includes more than just the two people in our household. Um, And we've all been through like consensus based workshops. Oh my God. Ground ground rule making. Like like (laughs) we are, we are all master facilitators (laughs) at all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I realized that I am like opening myself up to, judgment by saying that I'm a part of this and you know I haven't posted anything on Instagram about it I'm not well, out you're out now pod members yeah, you're out now. <laughs> but my yeah. co my pod members can remain in the closet yeah. um uh but yeah it definitely feels like uh to to continue the analogy of you know the coming out of the closet I mean 
that like my actions might not only be sinful for me, but could like infect the rest of the population, which is a little bit more true in this case than others. But I mean, I just want to assure everyone that I am taking extreme precautions, you know, only hanging out with the people in my pod, uh, wearing masks. <laughs> yeah. I do it safe, <laughs> safer. Well, and I think is, you know, I think it's important for everybody actually, like as we go forward in this, these difficult times, TM, um, of social distancing, like this is going to go on at least in states that are smart about it, like for a long time. And I really think that we're all going to have to find ways of safe as safely as possible, but not with a hundred percent safety of, of, of expanding our, our social networks, because it's just not, as you, you described it so eloquently just a minute ago, like it is not, it's certainly not natural for me, and I think it's not sustainable for a lot of people to really just be um, with their, you know, their home unit, and especially with if that home unit is just them, right? Like those of us with partners and whatnot have at least sort of a built-in uh, thing, but like social aspect to our lives. But like even that, like we are going to need to find ways of smartly expanding. Uh, those communities um, and it's going to be about risk mitigation, right? It's going to be about making those calculations and not everyone will agree, which is, is the same. The same was true, you know, with, with safer sex practices and HIV, right? Like people had different ideas about what the right way to do that was. And people, you know, all have to choose for themselves and make that, that sort of balance between the good of the community and, and the needs of the individual um, and, uh, I feel again, very prepared to do that going forward. Um, and I think a lot of queers will probably feel the same way. I think it boils down to that. We are accustomed to a belief in the importance of community and doing your part to maintain the order inside of that community. And what the, the public health crisis that's unfolding right now is a reminder that we are sort of all a part of the same community and some of us are accustomed to being participants in a community and some of us are not. All right, that's all the time we have for the way queer people are better. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> listeners, we'd love to hear your thoughts on anything we've discussed and also about your own experiences during hashtag these times. Uh, you can email us at outwardpodcast at slate.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Haha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
I think many of us would find this period of quarantine so much more difficult without our streaming services. And this month, Netflix is really helping advance the larger gay agenda with two documentaries, Chris Boland's A Secret Love, which tells the story of Pat Henschel and Terry Donahue, a lesbian couple who meet in the 1940s and live a mostly closeted life, and Rachel Mason's Circus of Books, which looks at her parents, Karen and Barry Mason, and their unorthodox family business as the proprietors of a gay bookshop in West Hollywood and in Silver Lake in Los Angeles. And they're both great documents of gay life in previous moments. Um, I know we all watched these for our homework for today's show. And um, (laughs) I have to say that I was really, really touched by A Secret Love, um, even though I knew that its agenda was to touch me. (laughs) It's hard not to be moved by a love story, especially a love story that spans, you know, many, many decades. These women met in the 1940s. They're two young women from Canada. Terry was a baseball player in the All-American Baseball League, which was immortalized in the extraordinary movie, A League of Their Own, a movie I cannot resist watching whenever I catch it on basic cable in the middle of the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And... There's just something very moving about seeing our, uh, when my husband and I, whenever we, we go to Fire Island every summer, and whenever we see our um, lesbian or gay couples in their 70s or 80s, we always call them our forefathers or our foremothers. And there is something really gratifying about looking at your foremothers and just hearing the story of how their love persevered over decades in a period when it was really, really different matter to be a gay couple. Um, so even though the movie is sentimental and it wants to really push your buttons, um, I was really happy to have those particular buttons pushed. (laughs) What did you guys think? It's a very sweet way to put it. Yeah, I, um, you know, when I saw the trailer for this, for A Secret Love, I like was already crying. Like I, I was, I was like so ready for, for exactly what you're talking about, Roman. I will say that my experience of watching it actually was a little more complicated than that, which really surprised me. I had sort of settled in for for just a, you know, wow, aren't our aren't our foremothers, as you say, so so amazing, um, and they are the the couple themselves is really uh, fascinating, and they you know the the baseball playing was fascinating, the the way that they built a life together was really interesting, um, very much sort of in the. Um, you know, closeted is one word, but but it's almost more just like super private. Like it, yeah. it was sort yeah. of a, a mode of a mode of being gay together. Um, that that is just like about maintaining a very safe space around yourself at home and sort of not and and also having like I mean they do have gay friends that we meet a little bit along the way, but um, it, they certainly didn't seem to be like out and proud in any particular way or like connected to gay politics or anything like that, but. Um, the thing that surprised me about the movie was I found myself really um, bristling at the way the uh, that Terry's family, biological family, treated the couple. There was a strong sense for me that particularly it was a, a niece who was sort of involved in organizing their, um, you know, their uh, aging and sort of end of life care um who i felt like really did not take their relationship seriously or as seriously as i would have liked to have seen it taken um and sort of treated pat who was terry's partner um as as sort of i don't think she would have treated 
that person th- that way if they had been a straight couple. Yeah. I think there, 100%. W- there would have been a kind of primacy given to what the couple wanted to do, which was, you know, not necessarily go into this or that, you know, um, assisted living facility or whatever um, at a given moment. And instead, this niece sort of comes in and is acting like she has more right to say something than like the spouse does. Mm-hmm. And that is not something we typically believe in our in our culture um, for, for straight people, certainly. And so I actually found myself very upset in this movie um, for much of it to see how that was handled. So I, I don't know if, if y'all felt that way, but that, that was certainly a surprise to me. I completely agree with that. And I tried to check myself by thinking, like, what would I feel like if my aunt and uncle, you know, my mom's sister and her husband were in a situation like this where I felt like my aunt deserved better than whatever my whatever her husband was doing. And we're talking about just like, you know, nursing care, that kind of thing, right? Like, Right. Yeah. Like, should they move closer to family? Should they move into an assisted living facility or stay in the house in the city they've lived in for 40 years together? Mm-hmm. I would never feel the right to come in and acu- unless there was truly an abuse situation going on right. to come in and say that I know better for your family than you do, or I know better for my aunt. I know what's best for my aunt better than you do the person who's lived with her and been, you know, all but legally married to her mm-hmm. for decades. Um, and I think it's important to note that the filmmaker is uh, Terry's, great nephew so his mom is the niece that came in and was you know bringing all this drama into their life I mean that's my subjective perspective I was fully team Pat and team (laughs) Terry Um, but I thought there was a little bit of a conflict between his desire to give sort of equal footing to the biological family's perspective and Pat's perspective um I thought there was a a conflict between this a little bit of a desire for on-screen drama and what I would have liked for the film, which is to see more of this life that they built together under sometimes really difficult circumstances. I mean, you see almost an entire fight that Terry and Pat and uh, the niece ha- Terry's niece have at a kitchen table. And it felt like I was watching Real Housewives mm, or something. Mm-hmm, right. Meanwhile, Canadian. The, <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. The, like, very full and vibrant life that they built with their chosen family is only represented in this one dinner they have with their friends and some photos and videos here and there. And the photos and videos were what was the most touching to me. I mean... I was very hungry for more stories from this very full and happy life that they built together um, on their own terms. Um, it, it felt a lot like the straight person's version of a gay life coming out in marriage, being the main storylines mm-hmm. um, sort of bookended by tragedies, like the shame of being in the closet and then death and the family's uh, acceptance or non-acceptance as the major turning points when really it felt like for much of their lives, they didn't need that acceptance. They didn't come out until a couple years before they, before, you know, the, the documentary filming began. Um, And it, it was clear to me that they didn't truly, that Terry's family didn't truly see Pat as part of the family. Yeah. And so it was interesting to me that a member of Terry's family 
was then expected to make a documentary about their life. It's true that the movie sort of seems to be a document of this decades-long life, but it's sort of concentrated on a battle about whether or not these two women will enter an assisted living facility now that they've sort of at the end of their lives. And I, I know what you're saying, Christina and Brian, both, that like you wish the attention had been more on how did these two women, just two kind of ordinary human beings, end up living a life that was so quietly radical. And so much of what so much of the tension that arises around the question of whether or not they will go into an assisted living facility comes to a head as a kind of confrontation between Pat and her partner's extended family. And you can, and I think a queer person can watch that and see how Pat might have been the strong, resolute one who kind of kept their relationship, who, like that, that she was so motivated by a desire to protect this woman who she just adored so much. And it's so clear that like their affection is so palpable and that Terry's family perceives her as being kind of difficult and tough and, and um, cutting, cutting her biological family off. Whereas I, what I, what I imagine Pat and many gay people would say is no, she's not cutting them off. She's maintaining the family that she has, she and her partner have created, which is, you know, and that took a lot of toughness in, in, in the 1940s to be able to make that kind of a life. And, uh, it's a very sad story and really it is remarkable that they just had this quiet and extraordinary, really kind of punk rock life in the suburbs of Chicago. Two ladies working as a reception as receptionists at a fancy interior design firm, getting all dolled up in high heels and makeup and then going home to their twin beds. Like it's, there's a lot in there that's really just very touching and makes you it makes me think about how I wish we were more interconnected to earlier generations of gay and lesbian people, you know? And I felt a similar thing watching Circus of Books. Circus of Books is about this straight couple with this funny, who sort of stumble into this funny business running a porn shop in West Hollywood and then eventually producing themselves working as producers on gay pornography. They don't they are liberal and they are very humane people, but they do struggle when their own son comes out as gay. And that shows you that there's sort of a, like, it, it's a reminder of the limits of straight allyship or like the, the significance <laughs> of having like very, very um, firm gay family bonds, chosen family bonds, because what you saw when, Pat and Terry go visit this gay couple, this gay male couple who they've clearly been friends with for decades. And you see how alive they are with one another and how forthright they are with one another. And that sort of, it's a reminder of that's how actually they survived this. Yeah. Yeah. That's really true. I mean, the, the, the I want I'm trying to connect the, the question of like, how, how could such a liberal, like in circus of books, how could such a liberal, family be shocked by, you know, their son being gay. And then how could, uh, and a secret love, how could that family literally see this relate? I mean, it, it wasn't that they were closeted, like that the family members didn't know this other person existed. She was, uh, Pat was present in Terry's life throughout and like went home with her many times. And they did this amazing 
straight thing of like being able to like not imagine what was happening. Right. It was like, right. oh, well, we just like, you know, it's just, um, you know, friends who live together in Chicago because the rent's expensive. The magical, like, you know, the magical thinking these, there is incredible. Yeah. yeah. These like, w- these, um, these fantastical backflips of like logic that people have to do. I'm, I'm, I, I empathize with their family though, because I do think it's difficult from the vantage of 2019, 2020 to look back at a relationship that was happening in the 1940s and the 1950s and say like, oh gosh, I wish, I wish my dad and I wish my uncles had treated this beloved aunt in a better way. And now I should try to sort of make, you know, that my treatment of her and my care of her in her, in her final years will sort of mitigate or absolve my guilt about some of that. Um, it's a tough one. It is a tough one. And it's a, it's still a very sad story. Circus of Books, however, doesn't go quite so far back into ancient history. I mean, there's context from early gay liberation in the 1960s as sort of the period that created the store and the, the period that gave birth to this family's experience running this shop. And, but that was just, it was a very different time. Um, I, I also saw that sort of desire for um, late-breaking absolution in Circus of Books where um, Karen Mason ends up becoming a PFLAG advocate after rejecting her son after he comes out as gay. And I actually think both of these films suffer for uh, their closeness to the closeness of the filmmaker to their subjects. Mm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. This film was made by Rachel Mason, who is the daughter of the two proprietors of Circus of Books. Um, and even though it definitely doesn't turn away from Karen's homophobia, I think it ends on this like superficial happy note about acceptance and tolerance that feels really undeserved and and devoid of real meaning. And it doesn't the the question that I was asking is not necessarily uh, how can she, you know, how did this person who rejected her her gay son after running a gay bookstore and profiting off of gay people suddenly become an advocate for PFLAG, but how does she reckon with the fact that up until the very end, you know, she had this very thinly veiled contempt for her customers and the products she sold. I mean, even mm-hmm. in the film and contemporary footage, she goes to this sex toy expo and she's like, is this for gay? She <laughs> yeah. used the word homosexual. She's like my homosexual son. Um, she doesn't know what the sex toys do, but she's like, well, th- whatever it is, it- it'll sell well. I know that. You know, she says she's never even watched the movies that they produced. And it just made me so sad to think about A, this straight couple profiting off of gay people and being in charge of stewarding this center for gay life. And also the fact that they weren't the sort of stalwart allies that gay people needed during the AIDS epidemic. They are kind of like, well, our our role to play was these little human kindnesses. We visited people in hospice and whatever. But, you know, if you are running and making money from being the hub of gay life, you know, for, for some people and in some ways in Los Angeles, like you actually have a responsibility to stand up and be uh, like a political force, I believe, you know, if you're making your living, um, making money from gay people, it, it felt like there were so many more questions that this couple should have to answer. And, and not in 
the antagonistic tone that I'm taking right now necessarily, (laughs) but they just seem like really interesting questions to explore that like a queer filmmaker not related to the subjects could have explored and maybe would seem unfit, maybe would have seen it unfit to end on this note of like waving a rainbow flag and the P flag float in the pride parade. Yeah, the the question of questions <laughs> and like which questions were asked by the documentary by the, the director in both of these is really interesting. I mean, I had been thinking about in a secret love like the like why don't we hear or like like we're so you know we're uh, Pat and Terry as apolitical and sort of disconnected from from um, you know the decades of of gay politics that they live through as it seems. And I kind of, I'm realizing just in, in talking with y'all that I kind of took that at face value, like the way that the film presented it, but maybe that's not true, right? Like maybe, maybe they just weren't asked about it. Um, and that, you know, as you say, we, I don't know the identity of the filmmaker in that case, but like, it does strike me again as like, a kind of straight approach. It's like, so you, so you didn't think to ask about like, well, what do they think about Stonewall or like, what, you know, whatever, like, um, you know, to assume that their, that their lesbianism only, uh, sort of lied in lies in the fact that they made a home together is a very somehow like straight view of what gayness means, if that makes sense. Right. Like it's like, it, it looks at only the romantic relationship and not, not any, you know, and it's entirely possible they weren't. Plenty of plenty of queer people, especially of, of that older generation, I think, chose not to sort of be involved um, in anything ex- external. So that's possible, but like we just don't know because the question. Yeah, wasn't and they asked. still have a relation to it, whether whether or not they participated. They have thoughts about it, right? For sure, right, right. Even if they sort of rejected it, right? That would be yeah. interesting too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in their defense, it. It is so, like, it was just so different a time. And there is a generational attitude, I think, toward discretion or, you know, you just, you don't talk mm-hmm. about, you don't talk about certain things or it's un, it's unseemly or it's just not what you do. You don't, you don't sort of put, put it in people, you don't put your business out in public. And, um, right. and I, I, I'm not unsympathetic to that. And I think one of the, one of I think given how few documents there are of gay private life from previous generations, the film is still really effective. There's a scene toward the end of the movie where the women are moving out of their longtime home and they're going through some love letters and love poems that Pat had written to Terry. Mm. And they're really affecting. And her niece, Terry's niece asks, she says, oh, why are the pages torn on the bottom? And Pat explains that they would have torn off the signature so that if somebody picked up the piece of paper, they wouldn't know who had written this love note. So that, so that in in theory, if like Terry's friend had seen it, she could have been like, Oh, this guy wrote that to me. And that's very affecting and really like important to hear. And it's, it's very, very powerful. I found it very powerful. I, I know exactly what you're saying about wishing that wishing better and wishing that the films, both films had interrogated these things more closely. But I do think there is some value in that particular in what that film captured. Totally. And it, and I think it was those moments that made me wish for more of that, or like the the story that they tell about how they first got together after 
you know, Terry was sort of homophobic in her yeah. own way, too. She heard that lesbians existed and locked her bedroom door so that they couldn't come in her room, you know, if there were lesbians on her baseball During the team. baseball time, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's always, every time I see photos of these incredible photos of queer people of previous generations just out enjoying themselves, I think, like, how did they find each other and how yeah. did you like cruise yeah. basically back then or start a relationship. And, and I loved that the story that they tell where, you know, Pat passed Terry a note. Um, and yeah, it was that kind of thing that just made me want a whole movie about, about that, about their lives and not just about their, the, the, their lives through the lens of what their families could see. I'm curious what you guys think about this, but Pat and Terry reminded me so much of Edith Windsor, who became so much the face of the movement to legalize gay marriage in this country. And Edith Windsor was a remarkable woman and like really like beautiful and darling to look at. She was like really petite and she was quite old when that when that case had gone to the Supreme Court. But I feel like there's a relationship between the presentation of elderly gay people and um like winning sort of public sympathy for gay politics that when you are, when you're talking about somebody who is, you know, over 60, you're looking at them in a way that is de-sexed and it's entirely different than when you're talking about, you know, people our age or indeed people younger. And I wonder if you guys had felt anything similar. Well, I mean, we know that that what you just described was like, pretty explicitly the strategy of the marriage equality movement. I mean, when they were choosing perfect plaintiffs, like that was that was precisely kind of the goal was to choose people who were tended to be older, not not always as old as uh, Edith Windsor, but like older, but who who were sort of able to be de-sexed and just be, be viewed through this this sort of respectability politics and like, um, you know, where you could just look at the love somehow as apart from any intimacy, right? Like in their, in their relationships. I mean, that is, that is like very explicitly what was going on. Um, and you know, it, I think it is effective, right? Like, as I say, I saw the trailer for this and, and I'm, it was playing on the same kind of, um, sweetness that, that, that was always about. And so I, you know, um, I think that's, that is there. Um, the thing that it made me, uh, you know, that it that it sort of brings to mind that that reinscribes politics in it again, though, is like uh, the issue of gay aging, right? Those like so, if we're going to use those those people um, as our as our like PR <laughs> in a way, um, we really should be thinking about like what end of life um, care and and all that looks like for us. I mean, I, the the big lesson of that movie, I think, is like. You really want to have, as a queer as queer people especially, your plans together for that period of life, so that uh, perhaps I'm, I don't want to say hostile straight. Although in some cases people's families are hostile, but like in this case they weren't hostile, but just meddling straight family, let's say, um, have to come in and handle your shit uh, and perhaps put you somewhere. You know, there's there's a moment where they um, they ask a assisted living uh, sort of director facility director like have you ever had a same-sex couple here before and they keep getting no's and like sort of confused looks not not necessarily again hostile looks but just like confused um or and you know that is why we are building uh gay retirement homes right because like it is scary to have to go to have lived your whole life 40 years right together 
in a world of your construction and then suddenly have to move in with a bunch of straight people who may hate you. Um, and so that, you know, that is what I was thinking about a lot and, and sort of worried for them a lot. And, um, it seems to be, you know, aging, aging well as queer people is not something that I feel like our movement has focused enough on, even as we have used our elders as, as these sort of PR tools. So that's, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question, Ramama. but that's kind of what I was thinking about. That's really smart, Brian. And I look forward to the queer retirement community. We all find ourselves yeah, in, yeah. <laughs> let's, in, in too short Let's move time. to Palm Springs, you guys. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> listeners if you've seen either of these films and have thoughts of your own we would absolutely love to read them you can email us day or night at outwardpodcast at slate.com all right that is about it for this month uh but before we go as always we have our monthly updates to the gay agenda uh christina why don't you start us off I want to recommend a piece in the New York Times by Miles E. Johnson called Little Richard's Queer Triumph. Mm, Um, So Little Richard, the architect of so much of American rock and pop music, uh, died on May 9th. And among the tributes to him um, was this excellent piece about Little Richard's sexuality and gender performance. Um, He had a very... A complex relationship to queer identity. Occasionally, he he identified himself with labels under the LGBTQ umbrella. At other times, you know, said homosexuality was an abomination, but he was indubitably queer. Um, And Miles E. Johnson does a really good job in this piece of contextualizing his queerness and his gender divergence within the rest of um, American music. Um, And he makes a really good case for the fact that those things about him really inspired his music and were a wellspring of creativity and innovation and clearly something that hits a nerve within the American public. Um, And he names a couple other performers um, and artists, Josephine Baker, Ma Rainey, Sister Rosetta Tharp, Zora Neale Hurston, James Baldwin. He writes, it would not be a stretch to say that mainstream culture as we know it is a black queer project, often appropriated by others, but birthed by black queer people. Oh, I love that line. Um, I love that line so much. Yeah. it And I love the idea of um, this ongoing project of going back through American history and trying to... Um, you know, view the truth of our history, which has been for a very long time and and even still sort of whitewashed and straightwashed. Um, and to fully recognize the brilliance of so many of these artists, um, you need to talk about their queer identity and, you know, the and also the ways that their black queer identities were appropriated by people who came after them. Um, so it, it's a really great piece. Um I highly recommend reading it. Again, it's called Little Richard's Queer Triumph. That sounds amazing. That sounds great. Uh, yeah. That, yeah, I read it. That's It's really great. Um, Ramon, what do you have? Well, um, I started the show by talking about Andre Leon Talley's memoir, and it made me remember a really, really wonderful book that I read a couple of years ago called The Beautiful Fall. Um, it's a book by a woman named Alicia Drake, and it is a story. It is a story set in the 1970s of the rivalry between the fashion designer Karl Lagerfeld, who Tally writes about a lot in his memoir, and the late fashion designer Yves Saint Laurent. 
And it is just a beautiful, rich work of cultural history, but it's really kind of suspenseful. And these two great geniuses battle over the love of the same man in Paris in the 1970s. It's super glamorous. It's really thoughtful and smart about fashion and about culture. I know a lot of my friends have been saying they've struggled to get lost in a book and like think about something besides the news right now. And I feel like this is a book that could really transport you to something that's just much more frivolous, like a sort of a decadent 1970s glamour milieu, which is just so much preferable to looking at your news alerts on your phone in the middle of the night. So it's called The Beautiful Fall by Alicia Drake. I highly recommend it. That sounds lovely. Brian, what do you have for us this month? So um, I have another television show to recommend uh, because we are all, as we say, watching a lot of TV. But this one, <laughs> this one is truly remarkable. Um, and I really hope people will seek it out. It's called um, We're Here. And it's on HBO. It's a six-part sort of documentary series that they're running. Uh, I think three episodes have aired. And there's, I believe, three more um, at, at the time of taping anyway. Um and what it is, is uh, it's sort of a, a Queer Eye style show, but it's just so much better. It's like, it's, it's, mm. it, it is what Queer Eye, like, sort of wishes it were both, both, and I mean that in terms of both the new one and the old one. Um, what happens in this show is that Bob the Drag Queen, Eureka O'Hara, and Shangela, all of uh, RuPaul's Drag Race fame, um, descend on small towns across America um, and gather up a, um, for each of them, they each choose a, a sort of drag daughter in that town and, uh, then go on over the course of the episode to create a big drag show that is, that goes up at the end. Um, but in the middle, in the midst of, of that process, we really get just, just some fantastic, uh, often really moving and, and painful and, and just serious portraits uh, of what it is like to live in these places. And what's interesting is that most of the drag daughters are queer people of one sort or another, um, but some of them are straight, uh, but who, who for whatever reason, um, sort of identify with the queer community or want to challenge their uh, ideas about gender presentation, these kinds of things. So it's a real mix of people with all different kinds of stories. Um, and these fabulous drag queens come in and sort of um, really help uplift them and help them say something about themselves in that place. Um, and the show, of course, at the end is fabulous and, and, and really fun to watch. But I cannot think of a show, uh, a reality show especially, that I have seen ever that makes me cry this much. Or that I, <laughs> oh my God. Or, or that I think is, is, is this deeply smart about what it's doing, right? Like, even the title, I mean, at first you think it's, it's that these drag queens are like rolling up into town and they really, they literally roll up in these insane um, buses that like, like uh, Bob the drag queens looks like a purse because he's famous for his song purse first. So like his giant yellow <laughs> purse rolls into town. It's like that kind of thing. Um, and they set up these, they set up like a safe space somewhere in the town where they, it's like a beautiful drag lounge um, where they do the makeovers and everything. So there's that we're here aspect. But then what you really realize it's about is the fact that all of these queer people are, are there too, right? They're already there in Branson, Missouri, or in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Um, and, uh, you know, often living really difficult lives, um, 
even in 2020. And so um, the the queen's role is not so much to show off themselves, but to to really just um, help these people make a big statement about their presence. Um, and so, oh my god, I'm no, I love it, I love that. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's so it so clearly shows what the magic that drag can really bring to people. The transformation of confidence and sort of presence that it can provide, as much as you know, a great wig. And um, I just I just love it so much. I like I can't speak more highly of it. I think it's I think it's great. And you know, um, as we said, we will be talking with Bob um, in June, and so we will certainly be talking about the show then. But uh, in the meantime, check it out on HBO. It's called We're Here. That's great. I can't wait to ask Bob about that. I know. Yeah, that'll be good. That'll be good homework to homework for our next show. Yeah. Um, well, that's about all the time we have for this month. Please send us your feedback and topic ideas at outwardpodcast at slate.com or via Facebook and Twitter or at Slate Outward. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. She's the ringmaster of our circus, our not-so-secret love. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app, tell your friends about it, rate and review the show so others can find it. Outward will be back in your feeds on June 17th. You guys, it was good to see you. And I will see you again soon, I hope. Yeah, you too. And someday we will all be retired in the same retirement community, God willing. (laughs) I can't wait for that. (laughs) All right. Stay safe and stay gay, everyone. You can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.